calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, and this is the series where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most thoughtful and accomplished people. Today, a special bonus episode. This is a live recording that took place during the 73rd CFA Institute Annual Virtual Conference. I chatted over Skype with geopolitical strategist Peter Zaihan, author of the recently released book, Disunited Nations, The Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World. We talked about the new global disorder, COVID-19, the US presidential elections, and much more. As you'll hear, Peter has strong views and doesn't hold back. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. It is now my distinct pleasure to introduce Peter Zaihan. Peter is president and founder of Zaihan on Geopolitics and the author of several books, including The Accidental Superpower, The Absent Superpower, and his latest just released, Disunited Nations, the scramble for power in an ungoverned world. Welcome, Peter. So, Peter, you make your living explaining chaos and dysfunction. So you must be sort of gearing up for a banner year, a banner decade. Let's start there. Um, you believe the global order as we know it is about to collapse. Can you spend the next five to seven minutes giving the audience an overview of your thesis for why you believe that to be the case? Sure. There have been two major reasons that we're being moved in this direction. The first, of course, is the Americans. Uh, the Americans have been backing away from having any interest in the global system now for the past 30 years. And you have to remember that for the Americans, the trade system, the trade order, globalization, all of it, was a side effect of a military strategy that we designed in order to fight the Cold War. At the end of World War II, we basically said, if you will be on our side, if you will stand side by side, not with us, not behind us, but in front of us, between us and the Soviets, we'll basically pay for you to be a successful country. So the United States didn't simply defend everybody in the alliance network. We created a global structure that allowed countries to trade without having to have an imperial navy to ensure that trade. That never had been happened. That had never happened before. And it worked great. And we won the Cold War. And then we forgot to change the system. And we elected in seven elections in a row guys who were less enthused with uh, anything in the international system. And that ended with Trump. And so here we are. Uh, second is demography. You got to remember that uh, people in their 20s, 40s, 60s, and 80s act differently. Folks in their 20s are the big consumers, the big spenders, they're raising kids and going to college and buying homes. Once you hit 40, 50, and early 60s, then you become the investors. Your house is paid down, you're saving for retirement. This is where the velocity of capital comes from. But then once you retire, it all goes away. Well, what is happening right now? Well, let me back up. What started happening in the 70s and the early 80s, and especially in the 90s, is people started having fewer kids. We industrialized. We urbanized, starting with Germany, moving into the rest of Western Europe, start, starting in Japan, moving into developing Asia, ultimately the one-child policy in China. People started having fewer, fewer in kids, living in smaller and smaller locations. Well, 
you add that up on a global scale and you fast forward today and there are very few consumption-led economies left. There's India and Brazil and Mexico and the United States and that's about it. Uh, most economies in the world, Germany, Korea, Italy, China, they're investment-led and export-led. Well, that only works until you hit mass retirement. And in the next few years, most countries that are in that export-led category are going to move into mass retirement and take all their economic activity with them. So that was where we were before COVID. What COVID has done is two things. Number one, it's knocked the consuming economies back. And two, it's given the export-led economies nowhere to sell. And three, if you were an export-led economy and you were transitioning to kind of this post-possible system, you've lost the income, whether from taxes or exports, that came with what little time that you have left. So you're dealing with a chronic recession now, a chronic depression just around the corner, and now no resources to prepare for it. Sounds bleak. It is. So in a world where countries must look out for themselves, and you believe there are winners besides the U.S., which countries are particularly well positioned for a disorderly future and why? Well, if you're going to be dealing with a world where international connections are not as robust and there just isn't enough global consumption to justify export-led, you've got to make sure you've got a consumption-led system at home so you can at least look out for your own people and then sustain your own economic model or you may, and maybe a close group of friends and family. Uh, you need to have a physical barrier between you and potential rivals so you don't have to spend all of your money on defense. You have to be able to access resources, whether it's energy or finance, either within your borders or very close by, get it from people that you trust. Now, the United States obviously comes in far and away at the top of that list, but a few other countries that'll probably do pretty well who have somewhat similar setups are France, Argentina, Turkey, and Japan. Now, obviously, not everybody has everything going for them. The, the French, when it comes to geographic barriers, are it's a little questionable. Uh, when it comes to demographics, the Japanese don't look the best. And when it comes to general organization, you know, I don't know if anybody wants to model their lives off of Argentina. But both are all four of those states kind of get four out of five stars when it comes to dealing with the environment that we're going to be in the future. It's going to take them a while to carve out their new spheres of influence. It won't start overnight. But at least these are four countries that will hold through the test of time with the United States. So very briefly, what are your thoughts on the financial or fiscal responses of various governments to the pandemic? I think everybody's doing the best that they can. I haven't seen a lot of just flat out policy incompetence, with the exception of a few of the mid-tier governors, or excuse me, mid-tier presidents who have tried to deny that COVID even existed. So, you know, I wouldn't look to Russia or Turkey or uh, Brazil right now. But for the most part, everyone is using what resources they have available. The problem is most of them don't have a lot available. Uh, if you look uh, at what you deal with when you're going through some sort of health crisis like this, uh, if the economic structure of your country is just thrown 
backwards. The, really, the only option is for severe government intrusion, whether that's through direct stimulus or loans or buying up shares of companies so they don't just collapse. There aren't a lot of good options, and there are very few countries who have any degree of fiscal flexibility. Japan is already in debt more than any country in human history, with the exception of the Chinese. Uh, the Eurozone limits options in that area, and that really just leaves the United States, Australia, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Uh, in that case, those last four, the Anglo states, were the only ones who really had any monetary flexibility going into this crisis, and they've already driven uh, rates down to effectively zero. But really, the U.S. stands out, not because it's handled the crisis well, because it hasn't, but it has firepower to bring to bear. If you, if you put aside everything that the Federal Reserve has done, which is substantial, and look just at the fiscal side, the United States is responsible for two-thirds of the fiscal stimulus of the planet right now, and is still experiencing a quarter-on-quarter -quarter recession that will probably be in the vicinity of 20% of GDP down. Uh, that gives you an idea of the scope of the problems we're facing here, because the United States is the only consumption-led economy of size left, and it is the only one that has the capacity to stimulate its economy in mass. And you add in national security concerns and health concerns and Trump administration concerns, and we're seeing a significant retooling of the industrial base in the United States to move a lot of this stuff home. First, it's just defense uh, and medical, it's going to turn into vaccine and medical supply, and then it's going to go into the broader manufacturing space. If you're American, that's broadly okay. You'll come out of this probably in a decent position. But if the world's largest economy goes home in the heart of the crisis and honestly doesn't share its marbles with anyone else, that's a real problem for everyone to just recovery from this crisis, much less prepare for the next one, which is probably only a couple of years away. Keep in mind that the majority of the world's baby boomers move into mass retirement between 2022 and 2024. So if COVID lasts just through the end of this year, that gives everybody one year. That's not enough. Yikes. I know you're keeping a very close eye on the COVID testing data. So I wonder if you can give us a sort of a whistle stop once around the world tour, lay out where we stand <laughs> in the current crisis and what to expect in the coming weeks. Sure. So countries kind of fall into three general categories. In group one, you've got Belgium and Italy and Spain and South Korea and Taiwan and Japan, countries that may have gotten a little, a little slow out of the gate, but have done a very good job of suppressing virus numbers. Uh, kind of the threshold is about 10 to 20 cases per million uh, population if you want to get it to the point that you can actually do a real opening. These countries have achieved that and they're starting now to open again. Uh, group number two are the countries that have done the opposite. They've either denied that this existed or they don't have a healthcare system or they're just not collecting data. Uh, India, on a bad day you might say Turkey, definitely Brazil, definitely Russia, definitely Ukraine. Places that just are letting this explode and are going to be generating case levels that we just have a hard time wrapping our, our minds around right now. And the third are all those countries in the middle that have done a degree of the lockdown, but either it wasn't implemented very well, or the virus has gotten away from them, or there's some geographic constraints that are preventing these countries from really taking too many of the lessons to heart. The United States is head and shoulders in the middle, I'm sorry, the United States is absolutely in that group right now. Uh, Indonesia is probably in that category. 
uh, some of the Central American states that have had a better response. What this means is there is no global solution here and there is no global path forward. And the fact that the United States, that big consumption-led economy, is squarely in this middle group where the virus is now endemic to the population and can't be crushed out. We missed that opportunity when we failed to do a good lockdown. It means that the U.S. can reopen. It will reopen. But things are going to look different. You're going to wear a mask just as much as you're going to wear underwear. Your social distancing is not something that we can get away from in the way that you might be able to in Switzerland or South Korea. And that means that certain industries, travel, tourism, retail, restaurants, amusement parks, they're just not going to reopen in the same way that they did before if they can reopen at all. And remember, this retail, travel, meatpacking, you know, these are things where you can't social distance. Uh, the economist calls it the 90% economy. We're not going to get to 90% because this isn't going to be over in three months. We've missed the opportunity in the world's largest consumer to move past this. So we have to deal with the consequences now. And we're going to be dealing with those consequences until we have a vaccine. And if the world's largest consuming economy isn't consuming, the rest of the world is not being brought along for the ride. The U.S. will now be exporting the virus in the way that the Chinese did a few months ago which means American integration with the wider world is completely off the table, which means dependent on the United States to buy your stuff so that you can grow is now completely off the table. And if the vaccine doesn't come around in mass till next year, that is more than enough time for the Americans to change their manufacturing preferences to shut out most of the rest of the world. So this, this is it. So I'd love to pivot very briefly to the U.S. elections. I'd love to get to the audience questions fairly soon. But before we do, before Super Tuesday, you said this was Trump's election to lose. And Absolutely. I'd love to know, uh, has your view changed on that? A little bit. The, the Trump administration has drastically proven that it is not a good managerial system. Uh, I have been repeatedly disappointed by what the Trump administration has done during this crisis. There's no real guidance. There's no real coordination. There's no help to the states financially, technically, with information, with equipment. Uh, so all 50 states have now had to chart their own path, and that's been confusing. It's been chaotic. It'll probably get a little bit better just because the states now know they can't rely on the federal system at all. But it has made it very obvious to the American people in general and to local and state governments in particular that they can't rely on this administration for anything in this crisis. And that means we will have other poles of power who can shine. Some governors are doing fairly well. Now, if you're the Democratic challenger, all of a sudden Trump has gone from commanding the airwaves and presiding over the longest economic expansion in American history to all of a sudden giving these press conferences that are, how should we say, um, creative. The problem that Joe Biden will face is that he has to leave his basement. And it's very difficult to campaign in this environment. There's also one small concern I have. We have a primarily respiratory illness in pandemic status that disproportionately targets guys over age 70. It's entirely possible that by the time we get to November, the two candidates are gone. And then we can have a little constitutional crisis at the same time we deal with the question of who's going to be the next president. 
So sticking with the US just very briefly, how do you see US trade unfolding in your view of the new global order? I will expect to see some bounce back in trade, but it is going to be relatively limited. Say what you will about the Trump administration, and I obviously have a lot to say about the Trump administration. One of the big victories of Team Trump in the first two years, two and a half years of his presidency was prosecuting trade talks with a handful of countries, either countries that came to the United States with something to offer or countries that the United States went to and said, you know, we want to rejigger things. So Korea, Japan, Canada, and Mexico, those four deals aren't simply negotiated. They're not simply ratified. They're being implemented right now. So we're already seeing American trade data <clears throat> reflect shifts towards those four countries and away from some others. The United Kingdom is likely to come along for the ride before the end of the year, but first the UK has to come to grips with the, the basic fact that they are not going to get a deal whatsoever with the European Union this year unless they decide to extend the Brexit process again. Um, and if they come to the United States this year, it's going to be a bit hat in hand and that's not going to be a comfortable negotiation for the Brits. But those five countries, that's half the American trade portfolio already. Under normal circumstances, without COVID, get those five implemented and the United States cuts itself off from everybody else, we'd probably have a recession here along the lines of what happened in 2000 to 2001. But with COVID, with everything on fire, Americans aren't even noticing that the relations with the rest of the world are collapsing. And when we climb out of this on the backside, honestly, it'll be a rounding error. So we'll have to leave it there, Peter. I'd like to go to some of the audience questions which are coming in. Um, sure. So first question, uh, do you think OPEC will sustain oil production cuts or the agreement will fall, ap fall apart and members will increase oil production? And this is coming in from uh, Thomas in London, the United Kingdom. Hey, Thomas. Uh, that's always a messy one. As a rule, OPEC is obviously awful when it comes to implementing production cuts. And there's really only one country that matters, and that's Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudis had made the come to the conclusion a little over a month ago that the Russians were such chronic cheaters that uh, COVID, with 30 million barrels of demand destruction, was an awesome time to launch a price war. And they were right. The problem that the Saudis faced is while they had the Russians cornered and while they were dumping crude everywhere the Russians sold with the intent of backing up the Russian pipeline network and destroying the oil industry in Russia, is that also hurt the shale sector. And so Donald Trump called up Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, and basically said, look, if you don't lead global production cuts now, not only will the United States withdraw all military funding and all troops, we will start opening talks with every country that you don't like about putting troops there instead. Uh, now, this was Trump, so we didn't say it quite that calmly, but you get the idea. So the question is whether the Saudis are willing to suck it up and the Russians aren't. Uh, and honestly, we don't have good enough data on that right now. But if the Russians continue pumping full bore, I have no doubt that the Saudis are going to feel pressed to double down on their expansion. If the Russians compete just a little and just give a little bit of cover to the Saudis, then I think we will see meaningful cuts from the countries that matter within the OPEC network. Remember, that's really just Kuwait and UAE and Saudi. Everywhere else, though, production is dropping quickly. You've already have a million barrels a day offline in Canada and the United States. We're probably going to see a quarter of a million to a half a million out of Nigeria. Basically, anyone who can cut in 
cut things down without actually destroying the reservoirs is doing so because people don't make a lot of money when crude is at $20. So it's just a question of how these two line up. The Saudis are making their decisions day by day. The producers are making their decisions day by day. And that's why oil prices haven't collapsed more than they have. Also, we are past the bottom when it comes to global demand. And this ultimately is a demand question. We went down by 30. We're probably down by about 20 right now. If that number can eat edge up just to 15, which it probably will within a month, then the disconnect between supply and demand will be considerably lower, and the amount of time that it'll take to overfill existing storage will be extended from weeks into months. And I think that is ultimately what the Saudis are after, and I think they're going to make it. So a total pivot to the next question. Uh, around the Spanish flu in 1918, a number of political trends took place. Communism, nationalism, fascism, world war, Great Depression. Do you see any societal changes following this crisis? I see complete societal change following this crisis. Now, that's not just because of COVID. That's because of those two other things I mentioned. Remember, the global order is going away because the Americans don't care. And the global order is going away because demographics globally have turned inside out. This was the decade that global demographics were going to flip anyway. We were going to lose a global-based, a global consumption-based system anyway. The Americans are just speeding that up with their geopolitical shift. And COVID is putting this into high gear. Well, what does the future look like? That's a great question. But in an environment, let me rephrase that differently. Since the time of the Columbus expeditions in roughly 1500, human economic interaction has been based on the concept of more. More interconnectivity, more financial strength, more trade, larger populations, more technological advancement, more, 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 more at every step until this decade. The global demographic implosion plus the Americans plus COVID means that this is this is the end of that model. 500 years of economic history are about to, turn, to end. We need an economic system that is not based on increases in size or complexity or markets or technology or finance. All of that ends this decade. All of that probably ends in the next 48 months. We know capitalism doesn't work in that environment. We also know communism doesn't work in that environment. And we're pretty sure fascism doesn't work in that environment. We need a new economic ism that deals with an imbalance between labor and capital that we have never experienced before. We're not going to get that right on the first try. The Japanese, the Europeans, they're going to have to try it first. Their demographics are furthest along. China will be very close on the Europeans' heels. In the United States, we enjoy the world's youngest and most, I'm sorry, the world's youngest and most slowest aging demography in the advanced world with the exception of New Zealand. And in fact, the United States isn't going to hit mass retirement in the first half of this century. There's a lot of time for us to watch other countries struggle with this. But before you get too happy with that, if you're an American, keep in mind that the last time we had this big societal upheaval and we explored new isms, we disagreed strenuously about a great many things. And to think that we'll get through a complete transformation of humans' experience with economics without anyone getting angry with one another, I think is reading history very optimistically. 
Question coming in from Fort Lauderdale here in the United States from Carlos. How will the global supply chain evolve in the future given recent events? Which industries will face the most dramatic changes? Let me give you a long term because that's simpler than a short term. So long term, unless the country that it's the hub of the manufacturing model is also a consumption led system, you can count on it breaking to some degree. So those uh, the, the four big ones are going to be Argentina, Turkey, France, and the United States. Japan's its own thing. Uh, definitely not consumption-led. If you're part of that network, cool. So Japan is going to try to pr be part of the American network, as is Canada, as is uh, Korea, as is the United Kingdom. That'll probably work out all right. If you're an economic hub outside of that network, again, you need to find a new ism. That's long-term, and by long-term, 48 months on. 48 months and less. We're having a lot of transition right now. One of the things that the advanced world is discovering is that when the epidemic hits a poorer country that's part of the supply chain model, those facilities go offline. Doubly so if it's an industry that requires relatively close quarters work for the employees. They either have a chance, they either have the option of social distancing, which means less technological transfer, less interpersonal communication, which means less advanced uptake of technology because you know people have to have a conversation to learn you remove that from the equation or have the number or quarter of the number of people that are in training you just can't adapt to the technology as it changes so whether you're in china or malaysia or indonesia or thailand or tunisia uh, you're looking at vastly decreased manufacturing capacity in the short term because of covid and in the longer term until we get a vaccine because they can't keep up with the technology as it evolves if you're an advanced country and you do have the capital, and you do have the consumption, it's a pretty simple decision in front of you. Either you can wait and go without whatever it is you need, whether it's a ventilator or a laptop, or you can make it your damn self. And what we're seeing right now is the mass relocation of manufacturing to Europe, to Japan, to the United States, because they don't have a choice. Now, some industries are more vulnerable to this sort of transfer than others. Others are pretty sticky. So automotive, wow. Uh, you know, Trump administration was very proud that they increased the percentage of input that are in vehicles. And honestly, that negotiation is almost irrelevant now because if you had to get something from East Asia, you just don't get it right now. You're having a hard time getting it from Mexico. Uh, luckily, most of that infrastructure is in place. The labor is already trained uh, and the market's right there. Textiles is one that most people wouldn't expect. Now, most textile work is done in South Asia, but it's done in close quarters and it's pretty much shut down right now. And one of the things that has come out of automation in the last four years is that you can now do most textile work with automation at a lower price point than you can with unskilled human labor in South Asia. So we're probably gonna see that industry relocate large scale. Uh, electronics, office equipment, white goods, that sort of thing. That's probably the next big wave. There's nothing technologically about that that prevents transfer. Uh, three other industries that'll probably take longer, heavy machinery, wiring, and semiconductors. All of them are vulnerable, but all of them are a little bit stickier when it comes to relocation. Uh, heavy machinery, you only need so many bulldozers, so it makes sense to keep it in one place until you move the whole thing. Uh, semiconductors, a lot of the steps of production are all in a single facility, and that's a multi-billion dollar facility, but we're already seeing groundbreaking in places like Arizona and Sinaloa to move some of this to the, to the Western Hemisphere. It's coming. It just won't be as quick. So we only have a couple of minutes left, Peter. I'm going to try and squeeze in 
two questions. Uh, sure. The first I'll, I'll one. Be brief. Okay. Will QE by central banks result in inflation? What do you think about MMT as a way to pay for the aid? Is this MMT now? The the seal's been broken when it comes to fiscal stimulus, at least in the United States. Uh, now, remember, the United States, it's a hard currency and it's the global store. So the United States has options for expanding the money supply that don't apply to other countries. MMT specifically, I don't think so. I, I know very few people who take that specific theory seriously. Uh, but the United States really doesn't have to worry about that because of its reserve currency status. Uh, the United States has done about $3 trillion of additional spending in the last two months. You know, that's just ridiculous. Uh, less than half of that, the Fed had to monetize. The rest was people just looking for any way to park their cash. You couldn't do that in the United Kingdom. You certainly couldn't do that in the Eurozone. Um, as for inflation, I think for the next four or five years, the real problem is going to be deflation. In part, that's an aging population globally, which is consuming less, while the industrial plant doesn't go away. But more importantly, in the next three years, the United States is going to be adding industrial plant in order to counter COVID. But the Chinese are not going to be taking their industrial plant down. So we'll get this weird dual system briefly where the Chinese will be building things at cut rates with insufficient buyers and just dumping their product on the market on and just the price rationale for that goes to zero. Whereas the Americans will be building things out that requires capital investment. They'll be charging more market rates for it based on higher capital investment. That's going to be mean higher prices, but they're not going to be price sensitive because capital is in essence free right. You don't need MMT to throw a bottomless supply of capital at things in the US. Sadly, we are out of time, Peter. To the audience, if we didn't get your question, you can always connect with Peter on Twitter at Peter Zihan, or you can sign up for his free newsletter on his website, zihan.com slash newsletter. Thank you, Peter, for your insights today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.